If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to Job chapter 9. And if you want to put a mark, a bookmark in Matthew 2, we'll turn there in a little while. Um, tonight's going to be one of those conversations and one of those talks with God's Word that um, it's very broad, but it narrows at the end. So I hope that you'll uh, allow me uh, a little folly as we, uh, we begin our conversation around a question, around a question that is pretty simple. Um, you may uh, look at me like I've got, like I'm talking a foreign language uh, preface when I actually ask the question. Um, but uh, I still think the question is pretty simple. And I promise you it ties in with uh, the season. Yeah, I want to start by asking a pretty simple question. Does anybody know what a light year is? Everybody heard of a light year? We've probably heard of a light year. Maybe we know kind of what a light year is. Maybe we don't know, but it sounds something to do with space. Um, and I know everybody's probably thinking, number one, what's simple about that? Number two, aren't we in church? Uh, which, yes, we are in church, last time I checked. Uh, but I promise you, the answer is pretty simple. A light year... A light year is the distance light travels in one earth year. Why it's called a light year. A light year is the distance light, specifically lights from the heavens, light from stars. Uh, a light year is the distance light travels in one earth year pertaining to how we count time, which is our lap around the sun. A light year is the distance light travels in one earth year. So one light year is about six trillion Miles, So light travels about 6 trillion miles in one earth year. So uh, that's a big number. But when we say light year, one light year, it sounds like a lot more digestible than 6 trillion miles. It doesn't, you know, our eyes glaze over when we see anything to do with billions and trillions, especially when it deals with space. Um, so file that information away. It's going to be important when we get later on in our conversation. Uh, if you've been around here long enough, or if you've known me long enough, you know that every once in a while our church services turn into sort of quasi-physics conversations. Uh, but that is not too far in from God's Word, because God's Word and the Bible, God and the conversation about God um, ties in with uh, creation and with the universe and the way that he designed the universe. That conversation about science and about all the things around us, the things in our universe that we observe and the things that we can't observe even, all that intersects with the Bible and with God uh, because God is the one that set all that in motion and he is the one that authored all those systems and all the things that we see and even the things that we can't see and that we can't understand. Uh, the Bible, as you probably noticed, has a lot to say about nature uh, and our hymns and our songs all kind of uh, you know, speak of that and mention that, uh, that uh, the Bible has a lot to say about nature, specifically the Bible has a lot to say about the heavens, uh, not just the heavens as we consider where God lives and pearly gates and, and streets of gold, but the stars and the sky. The Bible has tons of verses and tons of passages that talk about how God is specifically made known, uniquely and gloriously made known in what we observe in the stars and in the sky. Psalm 19 is just one of many verses that say something like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. So that verse, along with many other verses, uh, speaks of how God is especially and uniquely made known in what we can observe in the heavens or in the stars or in the space above. The ancient world, as you probably know, the ancient world was obsessed with, 
with the heavens. Uh, The ancient world was constantly observing the stars and the sky for signs and messages from the gods or from God, if not many cultures believed in one God, but even those that did, were constantly looking to the stars, looking to the sky, looking for some sign from God, looking for some, you know, word from God. They believed that the heavens especially declared and proclaimed his glory. From uh, the earth vantage point, the mystery of the sky uh, and beyond was so tantalizing. It was so far out of reach, yet it seemed to contain so much power and so much wonder. Every day, as people would observe, from the earliest of civilization, every day the sun would rise and the sun would set. The moon and the stars would, would rule the night sky. So as, as civilization began to develop and as people began to kind of come to terms with, you know, who are we and what's going on around us, uh, you know, 3,000, 4,000 plus years ago, uh, people begin to observe that the heavens, the sky, the stars, something spectacular was taking place above us and around us, and the earth depended on what was above it. From the sky came rain and all the weather that impacted every angle of life. Life was rooted in what came from above. So naturally, as the ancients observed all the mystery and wonder of the sky above, they naturally associated it all with God. So as they looked above and as they watched the clouds and the rain and all the things roll in and roll out and they watched the sunrise and the sunset and they watched the moon and they begin to observe the stars, they believed there was something instinctively, there was something to do with all the wonders and mysteries above them that revealed something about God. So they begin to focus on the sky. They begin to focus on the heavens. Specifically, they begin to focus on the stars. And maybe it was more than just a natural approach. Maybe there was something pulling at their hearts that brought them to this conclusion uh, that beyond what they could see, they marveled at the brilliance and at the spectacle and the ferocious nature of the heavens. And, and, And they knew that from above came the source of all earthly life. They knew that this planet depended on what was going on, whatever was going on above it. And of course, they didn't realize, but all around it as the earth was suspended out in some deep space. You you see, the ancients quickly figured out how things worked on earth. But the stars and the sky above, all that came from it and happened across it, it was way beyond their understanding. But they knew that everything that they could see and could feel and benefit from here was somehow sourced from and somehow dependent on what was above. But so much of what took place beyond was crucial for life as they began to know it here on earth. And thus, they came to the conclusion that somewhere up there, God must dwell. They didn't know where, didn't know how it all worked. They didn't know what was going on beyond the atmosphere. They could just observe what was visible. But they believed that somewhere up there, God must be. Almost every ancient religion from its earliest form to its most developed, believed the secret to the mystery of the divine was in the stars. If you study every ancient religion, those that were organized uh, like Judaism, uh, before Judaism developed as we know it, uh, if you study ancient Greek mythology, you study the ancient Egyptians, you study the ancient Babylonians, the ancient Rome, all the ancient civilizations, all the ancient religions, they had a common denominator. They believed the secret to the mystery of the divine, whether there's one God or many gods, they believed the secret lied beyond 
and across the stars. So they monitored every star in the sky. Every pattern was noted. Every phenomenon was studied. Now, the Bible is organized in a semi-chronological nature. Now, obviously, Genesis tells the story from the very beginning, but we really don't get into the, the Genesis. The narrative of Genesis really doesn't begin to be consecutive until we get to the story of Abraham. Uh, but many believe that there is a story that actually takes place before Abraham that would have been somewhere in the earlier chapters of Genesis, and that is the story in the book of Job. Uh, most believe, most scholars believe that Job lived around the same time or just before Abraham. So his story would have taken place Genesis 10, Genesis 11, sometime after the flood, sometime before the story of Abraham. And the reason why the book of Job is so important is that Job makes a lot of comments uh, about and, and gives us some, and some insight into how the ancient world understood all things and where they were focused, where their attention was focused. And you all know the story of Job. Job begins to suffer greatly and Job is defending his relationship with God to all all the naysayers that try to say that he's sinned or he's done something to make God angry. And Job is defending his relationship with God. But as Job does all that, Job begins to expound upon the mystery of God and all the things that is beyond our knowledge and beyond our reach about God. And as Job does that, there are several passages in Job where Job mentions um, observing the heavens, observing the skies. And again, this is so far into us, but there was no Bible in those days. This was before Moses, before the law, before anything that we understand as an organized religion. Job lived in a day and age when everybody was grasping for straws at some sort of information, at any bit of information about the one true God. Remember, they had heard the rumors of, uh, of Noah and that was all beyond them. But since then, the earth had been scattered and the people had been divided and everyone was confused and they all were looking to the heavens for some bit of information, whatever they could get their hands uh, or their minds wrapped around. And, and I, I wanted you to open up to Job chapter 9 because I wanted to just show you just a snapshot of Job as he marvels and at he, as he wonders uh, about God and as he kind of muses about God. And we get a little bit of information from Job about how they were looking for or how they were trying to search out more things about God. And I encourage you, I know Job is a dense read, but just read through the book of Job and see how often he makes comments like this as he, again, just worships and marvels at how wonderful God is and how specifically God is revealed in what is above us. And this really gives us insight in how the ancient world began to try to understand what we all take for granted. So Job chapter 9 Verses 7 through 11, just get this snapshot and just hear a few things that Job says as he's talking about God. Job says, he commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. Job didn't, they didn't understand how sci the systems that God put into place. They literally believed and they were, you know, observing nature and they knew, and they, obviously it still is true, they knew that God was behind all of this. And they were particularly amazed by how all the things that they could not understand beyond their you know, ability, how it all took place on some sort of system. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars, as in the, you know, the sun rises and you can't see them. Uh, he alone spreads out the heavens. He treads on the waves of the sea. He, and that's referring to the, the, the pull of the tide, which is connected to the, to the moon and to the, you know, the lunar um, uh, calendar. 
He made the bear, Orion, and Pleiades in the chambers of the south or of the southern sky. Now, we'll talk about what that means. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. So again, this is just a snapshot of the way the ancient world thought about God, understood about God, and they were obsessed with studying the stars and studying the heavens because they believed there was something up there that could give them more information about God. Now, Job mentions here in verse 9, he made the bear, Orion, or Pleiades, and depending on your translation, um, that the, the bear might there might be a, a word that, uh, that uh, begins with you there. Um, that's a, a Latin word for bear. Um, but Job is referring to constellations. Uh, the ancients would, would literally look at the night sky and they would you know, take a pencil, if you could do this, they would trace the stars and they would look for pictures because they were trying so desperately to figure out if there was some communication from heaven to earth. And they would look for pictures in the stars. And when Job mentions the bear in Orion, I know these pictures are kind of, fa- they're not uh, uh, very bold, but Job is mentioning two constellations. The one on, the le- on your left, is the constellation called the bear and the ancients believed it looked like a bear now obviously that isn't as artistic as we would draw a bear but they called that the bear because they believed if the stars made an image then there was something in that image that they might could find more about God through and again we all know this is not even part of our faith but this is just how they kind of saw things and were trying to figure out things the image on the right is is Orion which is a, which is a, a word that means warrior and you can see it's kind of like a man with a bow and arrow drawn Again, that's a very, that's kind of a stretch, but again, that was kind of how they were, um, they, they were just, you know, trying to come up with words that matches the stars. So again, this is just one example of how the ancients were trying to figure out more about God. But contemporary to Job, I mentioned earlier, was Abraham. Abraham probably lived a little bit later than Job, but around the same time period, uh, you know, Genesis 11, Genesis 12 time period around 4,000 BC. Now, Abraham would have been, would have lived in the same part of the earth. Job was from a land called Uz. Abraham was from a land called Ur. So similar naming conventions there. Before they got sophisticated, they were just naming cities based on sounds that they could make. So there was Uz and there was Ur. Abraham was from Ur, which was an ancient Chaldean or an ancient Mesopotamian. You've heard that word before. That's what they refer to the whole Middle East, uh, the, what we call Babylon um, or Chaldea. Um, the people of this region of the earth, where Job was from, where Abraham was from, they were obsessed with the stars. They were obsessed with the heavens. Uh, in this part of the world, the people built temples and houses of worship called ziggurats, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, ziggurats. Now, they believed that these ziggurats were uh, were especially helpful in finding more about God because they would build them in an upward motion. They would build them like towers. Think pyramid, but more, uh, more square and less uh, angles. They would build these towers. They believed if they could build the tower higher and higher, they might have a greater chance at getting the attention or finding more about God. And this is where ancient telescopes began to be created as they would get these towers built and they would get on the top of the tower and they would look up into the night sky trying to see what they could find out. Now, one of the remains of one of these ziggurats in the ancient world uh, or from the ancient world, this is sort of a remnant of one in in, in parts of um, Iraq. 
uh, one of the ancient ziggurats. Now, most believe that they looked like this in their heyday um, 4,000 years ago. We'll go to the next picture. Um, most scholars believe this is what they looked like when they were in their prime 4,000 years ago. So you see that one before was really rounded over and it's, it's weathered a lot. Um, so kind of like the pyramids the, the Egyptians built, but again, more square and more platformed. Now, uh, there, there were some ziggurats that people believed to be more tower-like and to get go as high as they could go. And this is is sort of a drawing, a romanticization of one of the most famous ziggurats of them all that the Bible talks about in Genesis 11. We know it as the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was one of the darkest periods of human, uh, of human history uh, because as they were building these towers to try to get to the top, to get to the top and see more about God, the Tower of Babel is an example of humans banding together and saying, let's not try to find out more about God. Let's try to take over God's throne. Let's try to usurp God. At the Tower of Babel, they built a tower hoping they could reach the heavens and say to God, we don't need you anymore. And we know that was a very dark moment and that led to the nations being dispersed and that led to the languages being confused. And sometime after the dispersion of people, Genesis 11, sometime after that and from that fallout came the story of Abraham. Uh, again, Abraham lived in the city of Ur. The people of Ur would have frequented their local ziggurat weekly, sometimes daily, consulting with the earliest religious figures of their day. Uh, in the ancient Middle East, one of the types of priests you would run into in, in, in any religious cult or any religious group that you would find um, would have been a group of men that were called stargazers. Uh, these stargazers would have been ancient priests that would spend their day atop of these ziggurats, atop of these towers, and they were constantly studying the stars, looking for signs, hoping to understand the gods a little bit better. Now, what makes Abraham's story so amazing, it begins with him, of all people, it begins with him hearing from the voice of the one true God. And the irony is, Abraham wasn't a priest. He wasn't a stargazer. He wasn't in one of these towers. He was just a man. He was just one of millions of people who wondered if they ever would know anything about God. Abraham was just one of millions of people lost in the sea of sand in the Middle East. And he, of all people, gets chosen. God chooses him to reveal himself in a personal way. Not through some constellation, not through stargazing, but through a relationship of the heart. Genesis 12 tells us that story that we've all, we've all heard before. Now, the Lord said to Abram, and what makes that so remarkable is they had been trying to hear from God for years and years, and out of nowhere, out of the blue, God speaks to, of all people, Abram. And he says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house and to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But the conflict there and the problem there, it's Abram of all people. Why would you pick him? He's 75 years old and his wife, Sarah, is around the same age and they cannot have children. And if they haven't had children at this point, they're probably not going to. But God says, Abram, don't worry about that. I want you to know I'm gonna bless those who bless you and those that curse you, I will curse. But from you and in you, all the families of the world, of the earth will 
be blessed. Abram, everybody is on top of these towers trying to find more about me, but you stick with me. You trust me. You follow me. And I'm going to show you what nobody else has been able to find out. And only through you will people be able to find the true way to me. While we, when we understand the context, it's remarkable because people had been building towers, performing rituals to get the attention of whoever and whatever was up there. And one day, God just calls down to Abraham like it's no big deal. But as we know, it was the beginning of a very big deal. Maybe the even more famous exchange between God and Abraham involved God calling Abraham to look up to the heavens, referring, uh, uh, referencing how many in that day were studying the stars to try to find out more about him. There's a time when Abraham is, is beginning to doubt this promise God made him. Fifteen years later, Abraham's in his 90s and Sarah, again, in her 90s, and they, are not, they haven't had a child yet. And Abraham goes to God and says, God, I, don't, I keep hearing you. I, I, don't, I haven't gotten anything from you yet, and I don't really know if you're going to give me anything. You say you will, but how do I know that you're actually going to? And again, we, we don't really get this because we weren't there and we weren't part of that culture, but now that we kind of know the background, when God says this to Abraham, it would, have made a, so, it would have been so powerful for him. God brought him out of the cave and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. Abraham, you live in a culture, in a society, in a world that is constantly counting the stars and looking at the stars and trying to find out more about me. Abraham, I want to let you know, all those stars up there, they're for you. They're pictures of all the descendants I'm going to give you. Those stars, the message they send is a representation of all the blessings I am going to give you, of the promises I've made to you. Nobody else knows this, Abraham. Only you get this from me. He says, go out and count the stars if you can even count them. So shall your offspring be. And in that moment, Abraham trusted God. He put his faith in God. He believed the Lord and God counted him as righteous. God transferred onto his heart a righteous stance. So again, what the world was chasing after through all these different pagan rituals, God gave to Abraham through an exchange of faith. God tells Abraham that the stars in the sky are indeed a sign, a sign of the multitude of descendants that he would have. Of course, this was just a gesture, but it's leaning into the notion of the day that the ancients were constantly studying the stars, hoping to hear from God. And Abraham indeed heard from him and had found a connection with God that everybody dreamed of. And Abraham passed this gift on to his children. And it was the Jewish, it was the Jewish people, only the Jewish people, who knew the true way to God. Meanwhile, the rest of the world, they're still counting stars. They're still drawing pictures in the sky. They're still trying to study the heavens, study the stars. They're still trying to stargaze and find, you know, interpret dreams and do all these sorts of, you know, uh, uh, pagan things that we know as pagan. They were doing all these things to try to see and find out more about God. Meanwhile, the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, they knew the one true way to God by faith in his promises. They had a connection with God that was not based in star, out of stars or based off of towers. It was based through a spiritual walk with God. And, and as it would pass, as time would pass, Abraham, of course, did give birth to a nation. Israel established itself as an earthly light, reflecting 
the light of heaven to a world searching for answers. If you read the book of Daniel, when the Jews are taken back to Abraham's homeland, back to Babylon, it's almost like God takes them back there to to, to uh, fill that circle or to finish that loop or to, to, to close that loop. Uh, we encounter in the book of, ba- in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar has a council of priests who are of the same lineage of those that were of Abraham's generation. This Babylonian priesthood we hear referred to in the book of Daniel are what we call magi or wise men, and, and wise men is just a kind of a lazy English translation uh, for, they were smart people. They were magi, they were stargazers, they were priests of the astrological, astrological you know, cult that had developed in the Middle East. For three, two, three thousand years, they had been studying the stars, trying to figure out something about God, and enrolls a young Jewish boy named Daniel, who begins to tell them things that they had been searching out for years and years and years, and King Nebuchadnezzar realizes that Daniel has something that his wise men don't have. Daniel has something his magi don't have. Daniel knows God in a way that they have been dying and dreaming about for generations. King Nebuchadnezzar realizes that the Jewish people have a special connection to God and he makes a decree throughout the land. I don't know how they've got it. I don't realize it. They they won't share the secret with us. Daniel just says, I know God by faith. There's gotta be more to it, right? They don't tell us how. They won't reveal to us how. But the Jewish people have something that we don't and we wish so badly we could get it. After Nebuchadnezzar witnesses the power of the Jewish God in many ways, he makes known to his kingdom that the nation of Israel and its God were a step ahead of the rest of the world. The priesthood of Magi would never forget this, and they would pass this information down to the generations who would fill their shoes to come. In the meantime, they kept looking at the stars because that's just what they did along with the rest of the world. They kept waiting for a revelation. The Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, they studied the stars. They worshiped the stars. They believed there was something in the heavens that would reveal to them the one true God. One day, wondering what the Jews knew that they did not know, what kind of connection did the Jews have that no one else seemed to get? Uh, the Jews, of course, they knew their connection was not normal. They rejoiced knowing they weren't at the mercy of signs or wonders. They had a direct connection to God via the Spirit, dwelled in the temple that they worshipped in, through the Word of God, in their customs. They had something the rest of the world dreamed of having, but just couldn't get Yet as they worshiped through the years, they never forgot that what was accessible to them was still a mystery to the rest of the world. Across the stars, they saw the glory of God. They praised him every time they looked up. They remembered how Abraham received that uh, envy of the nations when God spoke to Abraham out of nothing and called him out of nowhere. They remembered that what they received was not normal. It was not fair. It was a gift from God. They did not deserve it. And they showed the rest of the world that they were the only ones that had this connection. The Psalms are filled with verses from verses like Psalm 19 that talk about the Jews marveling at God and, and seeing that God is glorified through the heavens and what the rest of the world is trying to chase after. They just see God's beauty and they just see God's brilliance. Psalm 147.4 gives us an interesting uh, a bit of information Psalm 147 says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So again, 
the Jews didn't need the stars. They didn't need the signs and wonders. They had a relationship with God, but they still believed that God indeed spoke through the heavens, that God indeed was using all the glory and the beauty of what was above to communicate his glory and communicate his power and his might. Now, we talked about this when we mentioned Job, but the ancients gave stars names. Again, they called that one cluster Bear, they called another cluster Orion, they called another cluster Pallades. Uh, whether they were the same names as gods or not, in some cultures, the, the names of the constellations reflected different idols they worshiped. In some cultures, that wasn't the case. Uh, as for Job, he didn't worship them, but some people did. Uh, one of the constellations that was identified and monitored long, long ago, I mean, 4,000 years ago, there's record, there's documentation from ancient Babylon of a constellation known as Le. The Babylonians uh, observed a specific constellation um, that they said to them it looked like a lion. And again, that just looks like a, squ- a, a weird trapezoid with a cro- crook on the top of it. But the Babylonians called this constellation Leo or the lion. Now, this constellation, again, they, it's been identified for 4,000 or more, or really for us, it's been identified for over 6,000 years. Um, In this constellation burned some of the brightest stars in the sky. And specifically around this time of year, this constellation is brighter than any other time of year. Um, In this constellation, there is a star, the Babylonians and the Persians, again, documentations from thousands of years ago, they record that they refer to a specific star in this constellation as Sheru, or in their language, They call this star the king. Now in Latin, this star is called Regulus. And if you look up uh, if you look up Regulus on Google, you'll see a picture of Leo and you'll see a star um, that doesn't mean anything to you and I, but they call this star Regulus and the Babylonians and the Persians, they called this star Sheru or they referred to it as the king star because it was the brightest star in the night sky. Every few hundred years, a very particular phenomenon occurs where the planets Venus and Jupiter, as they orbit the sun, every few hundred years, these planets line up with each other. And every few hundred years, when they line up with each other, they also line up with the star Regulus. Jupiter and Venus, if you'll recall, last year was one of those years the first time in 800 years where Venus and Jupiter and Regulus all got close to each other. Now, the ancient Middle Eastern Magi believed that the planets represented gods or were used by God. Certain planets, they believed, carried greater messages. Uh, In some mythologies, Venus was believed to be the chief goddess. In other mythologies, Jupiter was believed to be the chief god. So in this particular phenomenon, these two very important planets, Venus and Jupiter, these giant gas body planets, these two planets get each other, get in each other's line. They are kind of each other's match, yin and yang. As Venus and Jupiter get close, they line up with the king star. And the ancients believed if this ever happened, that something glorious was being communicated to them from beyond. 2,000 years ago, this wonder took place and it sent shockwaves across the Middle East. 
The Magi had been observing Regulus for years and years, and they had been observing Venus and observing Jupiter. And 2,000 years ago, these two planets and this bright star all lined up with each other. And the Magi, as they observed the heavens on that night, knew that they could not ignore it. It's this occurrence that astronomers believe lit up the night sky on that first Christmas night. Luke 2 records it like this. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. That's the shepherds. But this is the shepherds occurring when the shepherds were under the star. When the planets lined up, the shepherds witnessed the glory of heavens. And, and, and Luke says it's almost as if the, the sky peeled back and heaven met earth in a way that had never happened before and has never happened since. When this light show happened, a certain order of magi quickly took notice. It would take them years to find where the star was shining above. But they set out on a journey and were determined to get there. Now, Babylon and Persia both associated their kingdoms and their empires with lions, which is why they were especially uh, familiar with and were you know, uh, uh, favorable towards the constellation Leo. But these magi knew that the glory of Babylon was gone, the glory of Persia was gone, yet there was another nation that clung to the lion as its symbol as well, the tiny little nation of Israel. Because its royal tribe, Judah, its banner was the lion. And these magi would have remembered that man, Daniel, who was from the tribe of Judah, who, rep who represented the one true God in a way that they knew they had never experienced. These magi believed this king star shined in the sky for the king of Judah. They did not know anything about what was going on in Israel. They didn't know what was going on in Judah, but they knew this star must be his star. It is the star of the lion. And we must go and worship him. Matthew's gospel records that story for us. I think it'd be fitting for us to end with a read from that story. Matthew chapter 2, now that we know the backstory of the magi or the wise men from the east, let's hear Matthew tell it. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him because Herod was the king. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't the rightful king, but he wanted people to believe he was the rightful king. But here comes these magi who had studied the heavens for years and years, and they declare that the king of Judah has been born, and it's not Herod. And when he, when he gathered all the chief priests together and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ because he knew this can't, if this is some heavenly sign, this must be the Messiah. This must be the final king. This must be the king that the prophets have spoken of for ages where the Christ was to be born. 
So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not, you are not the least of the rulers of Judah, but out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what, the, what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the, where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child because probably a year or two had passed since Jesus had been born. They had traveled that journey for so long. They came to the house where Jesus' family had, uh, were, were staying uh, and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because the legend had it that those that bless the seed of Abraham would be blessed. Abraham knew something that no one else knew. And the wise men believed this was the revelation to them that they had been waiting for. They were finally released from their stargazing because they saw something greater than a star. They saw the Savior of the world. Then being divinely warned in a dream they, that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I, again, this is so important. They had spent their lives watching the stars. And the minute they meet Jesus, they no longer needed the stars. They no longer needed their religion. They had a personal relationship in their hearts, as verse 12 reveals. <laughs> the Magi saw this phenomenon in the heavens and wondered, could this be a sign that the king had been born to none other than the nation of Judah? And so they made haste to see if it was so, and they were never the same after that. There's something even more remarkable about this whole series of events, though, as if it could get even more remarkable. And we've got to tap back into what we learned at the beginning of our time together. Remember, what's a light year? A light year is the distance light travels in one year. So let me try to make this as practical as I can for you. Because again, this, this is already amazing, but this gets even more incredible if we'll let it. A light year is the distance light travels in one year. So when we look at a star in the sky... When we look at a star, we are looking at the light that came from that star. Does that make sense? When we look in the heavens and we see a star, we're not seeing the star. We're seeing the light that shines from that star. It takes years for that star, for that light of any given star to reach us. Because light takes six million miles, it travels six trillion miles in one year. And if a star is any far distance away from us, which of course it is, it takes years for that light to reach us. So essentially what goes on is like this. And this is a very amateur physics drawing. The star is somewhere up in heaven and it sends its light. And we see the light, however long later, when it finally reaches our eyes. The light travels directly from the star so that when we see the light in the sky, as it, we don't see the celestial body, we see the light that's traveled from the body in a very straight, specific beacon of light 
we see it after it's traveled that distance. For instance, the sun is eight light minutes away. So the sunlight that we see is really eight minutes old. We see the sun eight minutes ago. Again, our minds can't comprehend that, but we see the sun light from what came from the sun eight minutes ago. And here's why I tell you this. The star Regulus is 77 light years from Earth. It takes 77 years for light to get here from Regulus. So when the stars line up so that we can see Regulus within the constellation Leo, that means we're witnessing an event that took place in the past. When when Jupiter and Venus and Regulus get together, it takes 77 years for that phenomena to reach our line of sight. You know what that means? Long before the shepherds were with their flocks, long before Caesar's census, long before the Immaculate Conception, long before the Bethlehem light got the attention of the Magi, long before people knew there was going to be a Christmas night, God sent the light. 77 years before Christmas, God turned on the light. And it would travel 460 true to trillion miles. I tell you all this to showcase just how God has his hands all over this universe. God's plans are so thorough and so specific, so organized and so detailed. And Christmas is just another example, maybe the greatest example. The Magi spent centuries, they spent thousands of years looking to the stars for a sign. History pointed them towards the nation of Israel as having something that nobody else had. Yet when they saw the star Regulus brighter than it's ever been before, something woke up in their hearts. Something woke up in their souls. They had been looking for this for ages and God knew it. So 77 years before Christmas, God lined up the stars just for these magi. Isn't that incredible? These magi had been looking to the stars for a sign for 4,000 plus years. And 77 years before Christmas ever happened, God lined up the stars. This certain group of magi stepped into the shoes of those who had always come up empty. Long before it was their turn to look for God, God was looking for them. And that is the heart of the Christmas story. Because we didn't get here through Abraham. We're assuming most of we're Gentiles. Our our ancestors were stargazers. They were all pagans looking to the stars, trying to find out something that was beyond them. Yet God saw these group of stargazers. As they were looking for him, he was looking for them. You know what that tells me and you? That long before we ever were born, long before you were doing your best or your worst, long before you were succeeding or failing, long before you were ever far away or ever close to God, God sent his light for you. Before we knew we needed God, God was inviting us. Christmas reminds us that God is a miracle worker and it's a work in the most wonderful of ways. 
I, I hope our time together tonight has awakened our sense of wonder. I hope that it makes us extra sensitive to God over the next few weeks. Not that we might look for him, but that we might realize that in Christmas, God finds us. I mean, you can't make this up, church. This isn't about us trying to find God. This is about God finding us. If we will just be still and humble ourselves and worship him, his light is shining bright and brilliantly. All we have to do is look up because he's already found us. Christmas erases 460 trillion miles of separation. Christmas peels back the sky through which comes the light of heaven, the savior of the whole world. Long before we were ever looking for God, God was looking for us. And Christmas reminds us that he's found us. All we have to do is believe. Church, I hope that that has been a blessing to you. I hope it's encouraging to your heart that God is at work in so many, so spectacular of ways that we'll never know it all. But just a little bit of nuggets of information he gives us should leave us speechless. Thankfully, God turned on the light. And thankfully, he's led us to the right place. Let me, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonders of our universe. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us in the dark. You didn't leave us searching for answers. Our ancestors were on mountaintops and in towers and temples trying to find out more about you. Meanwhile, what you did through Abraham and what you brought to the world through Jesus that was at a loss for all the Gentiles, yet you brought us in through the most spectacular of ways. You brought these wise men with a star, a star that you put in the sky decades before the light ever reached them. Father, thank you that you have worked all things out for your glory and for our good. Thank you that when we wonder how are we gonna get there, you've already worked out the impossible. You've already worked out the hard part. You're just asking us to believe. Thank you for visiting us, Father, from on high. And thank you that Jesus is the King. He is the Christ. And he does not leave us wondering or searching. He finds us and he keeps us. And he leaves us different people. We ask all this and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.